plastic itself, if you just decided that plastic was evil because it comes from fossil fuels and it's caused all these problems around the world and we see waste in the environment, then you could have a, an altruistic philosophical view on plastic is evil. And that's what a lot of people get caught up on. But imagine a world without plastic. There is no world without plastic. Sorry, wake up world. There is no world without plastic. Your health depends on plastic. If we want to wind the clock back and go back 70 years and have no plastic, wonderful. But what would that world be? You, you can't think that way. So that's why I say plastic is not evil. The improper disposal of plastic is evil. For joining us. Um, we have here today from the Nev Earth Company, um, Austin and Nev, who are the two founders and the geniuses behind what we're about to talk about today. Um, Nev Earth actually is a, a company that focuses entirely on utilizing plastic uh, that's recycled in order to create building materials for manufactured housing. Um, they're raising an opportunity zone fund uh, here in the US and will be focused on raising capital from investors that are family offices and, and some institutional investors for the purpose of getting their factory up and running and also being able to supply um, their partners in the space of the manufactured housing and the projects that they're building. What it is that you guys do at Never, if you were to give me a very brief introduction and a description of your why and your purpose behind what you're trying to do here. We need to distill it down to the problems that are facing the planet, which everyone's talking about up until the COVID scenario, which is plastic in the environment. I mean, it's just incredible how many people were focused on that and the need for shelter. You wrap those two things in a bundle and you've got something that the whole world gets excited about. And it's more than just getting excited. It's we, we, we've got the platform to actually provide the solution to deal with plastic in the environment. And that's all plastic. That's the seven codes of plastic. That's not just the clear plastic bottle or a straw. This is everything through to creating shelter that is modular shelter that can actually be built in a few days and can be removed in a few days. And it's permanent. And it meets all the criteria for a, a, a wonderful home to live in in a safe environment. Understood. Now, I know that I know that that's something that uh, you have a lot of explanation for. I, I want to understand what you mean by plastic is not evil, because everybody nowadays says reduce plastic, reduce reduce waste. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the main point being that um, plastic itself, if you just decided that plastic was evil because it comes from fossil fuels and it's caused all these problems around the world and we see waste in the environment, then you could have a, an altruistic philosophical view on plastic is evil. And that's what a lot of people get caught up on. But 
Imagine a world without plastic. There is no world without plastic. Sorry, wake up world. There is no world without plastic. Your health depends on plastic. If we want to wind the clock back and go back 70 years and have no plastic, wonderful. But what would that world be? You, you can't think that way. So that's why I say plastic is not evil. The improper disposal of plastic is evil. That's the problem. The, one of the best analogies I can give you is that the whole world now is pointing the fingers at the multinationals who provide us with goods that are wrapped in plastic. And they're screaming at them saying, it's your problem. You need to deal with it. It's actually kind of not their problem. It's our problem. We're the consumers who throw that plastic waste into the environment. I'm not saying for a second that we shouldn't find the alternatives and we shouldn't reduce. We should, we should reduce the amount of plastic. The whole single-use plastic scenario of reducing plastic is a, is a fantastic idea. We don't need a lot of it. But... The problem is that we need plastic. There are solutions to replace fossil fuel plastics with lignin-based plastics or bioplastics, etc. But it's going to take time for that to happen. And in the meantime, we have to have a solution. And that solution is finding out a way to repurpose the plastic that's in the environment and redesign it into something that needs huge volumes of that plastic. And what does that do? that provides a solution to get the plastic out of the environment. So yeah, yeah, and definitely we want to get into the to details of it. What I find really fascinating, and I love the fact that you're able to, to find a problem that we have in our world, use that and create that as the solution for, for another problem that we have. Hmm, and, and I love the fact that. that you guys have been able to find a way to not only put that together, but also at the same time, um, monetize that as a business, right? Hmm. So, that itself is something that's impressive. Um, just for me to understand one thing very specifically, you say that you um, haven't had, you know, a, a real job working for somebody. And I want to get back to you. This is a question that I, I had asked you the other day, and, and you gave me sort of a, an interesting answer. I want, I want people to be able to understand and hear that. When you say you haven't had a real job working for somebody, that tells me that you've been an entrepreneur your entire life. What does that mean to you? Well, let me start first by the fact that when I started surfing in Western Australia in 1967, my parents did not want me to be a surfer. They, they yeah, asked for surfing. parents wanted to be a surfer. <laughs> no, I know. Because at the time, it was it really, a, you know, they were bums. Surfers were regarded as bums around the world. Mm -hmm. And um, eventually, I got my surfboard for Christmas and eventually I learned how to surf. And then when I was at high school, Right. I started making surfboards for my uh, friends in my dad's garage. Um, and all of a sudden, I became cool. Even the girls were interested in me. I mean, I'm a ginger, right? I needed, I needed something. And making surfboards was an incredibly cool thing to do. So there I was at high school uh, making, and making surfboards as a business, making a profit. And the day that I left high school um, uh, was 1975 uh, in November. Right. The, the Saturday, we opened a surfboard company called Odyssey Surfboards. That began my journey. You know, kind of funny, but that was the start of my journey, Odyssey Surfboards. And, okay. um, and I've never, from that day on, I've never worked for anybody. I've been a partner in businesses, but I've never done nine to five. Not one day in my life have I done nine to five. And I, I, doesn't, I, I don't know if I should be proud of that or not, 
but it's just, it, it creates, you know, the energy that I have to keep pushing forward. Well, that's exactly what I was asking about, because you have this energy about you, about an idea, and you have the ability to take that idea and push it forward. This is not your first business, am I right? No. This is your fifth, sixth? It depends on how many surfboard businesses you count and how many other iterations of things that attach themselves to surfboard businesses. And you've successfully been able to start those businesses, close those businesses, exit them, and being able to take those lessons and move on and, and succeed in something else. Um, I think that's quite impressive. How did you meet Austin? <laughs> well, um, we'll be leaving out a huge part of the journey. So, um, and we will discuss that later, but um, when I became heavily involved in the plastics recycling business, which is a story in itself, yeah, I uh, was looking for ways to deal with volume of um, of plastic, of waste. And the idea of taking a scoop of landfill was really the, 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 the main reason we got together, to take a scoop of landfill and process that and take out from that scoop of landfill some elements that would have value. Yeah. So um, Austin um, had that technology and we spent quite a number of years um, discussing how we could integrate that into our system. And... Um, and then one day Austin said, I'm really excited about your business and I want to get involved. You can, you can hear that you guys are in Australia with the birds in the background and everything. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's the thing. Austin, how about yourself? How, how, how would you characterize your background and, and how would you characterize your experience leading up to the time that you've met with Nev? I've probably had three midlife crises. Um, three. With a, a three, yeah. <laughs> I'm substantially older than you, so I've got more time to have them. Uh, so I've had I've had three kind of distinct careers. Uh, as as a younger, slimmer person, um, I, I worked in uh, law enforcement and uh, Australian Army Special Operations. So there was there was a sort of twenty year government uh, security related uh, service period uh, and then I moved into the private sector and took a well-trodden path that a lot of us with those backgrounds have and, and moved into corporate and, and uh, security and risk management and uh, was very successful at that for 10 years, leveraging skills I already had. Uh, and then I made a small investment, like never originally, uh, I made a small investment in a technology and recycling company and realised after about a year that the, the guys who were running it um, were certainly technically capable, but as a business, I was probably going to lose my money if I, if I didn't uh, get actively involved. So... Right. Uh, uh, that discussion ended up me being appointed CEO of this, this company that was uh, helping develop uh, and promote US sort of recycling technologies into the into Asia. Um, right. And uh, so I was involved with that for, for five to seven years. So I, I sort of stepped completely from the risk management world into commercial. Mm -hmm. uh, and the last 10 years, uh, I've I've been a commercial director of a company that's 
developed um, recycling technologies um, for a variety of waste streams, including waste plastic. And that was kind of the overlap uh, where, where Nev and I first intersected about four and a half years ago. Um, and then the more I got to know Nev and what he was doing, I really thought that he was onto something incredibly unique. Um, the businesses I'd been in were purely, you know, recycle environmental waste reduction, you know, make profit, but never developed a concept that all of that was applicable and there was a huge social benefit in terms of housing, uh, employment and, you know, a much wider gambit of uh, social good and, uh, and still profitable. And uh, when he said to me, look, I'm a philanthropic capitalist, I, I just thought that was just the best thing I'd ever heard because, yeah, you know, the capitalism drives the philanthropy, you know, and, uh, you know, I've, I've been involved on, on boards of not-for-profits and there's a continual struggle for funding. Um, and, uh, you know, Nev in uh, creating this, this model is, is, you know, running a commercial business that's got philanthropic objectives and outcomes as well. Um, and uh, doing well by doing good was his other catchphrase that, you know, struck me as uh, appealing. That's, that's pretty impressive. And I, and I love the fact that you guys were able to find each other in a way where Nev has an interesting solution and you had all the infrastructure to be able to make that happen. Is that, is that what really clicked between the two of you when you uh, came across this idea? Well, from, from my perspective, um, a company is only as good as its people. And I can say that from a lifetime of having businesses with people that I've worked really well with and a crash course in work, working with people that have had the wrong motives right. in this particular space. And those people caused this group incredible amount of damage. And to find people that are ethical, trustworthy, um, and have the ability to be able to um, be strategic and move forward through drama and most importantly have very little if any self-interest we all want to make a buck but at the end of the day the bigger picture is more important and um, and that's what I've got in Austin and it's it's an amazing uh, relationship from that perspective because business it has to be a relationship if you can't get on with your partners forget it you guys certainly have great chemistry for sure we're both married uh, yeah. happily. Uh, so. <laughs> Not available. Not available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, he's still old for me anyway. <laughs> Not quite much. <laughs> tell me a little bit. Sorry. about the, um, Tell me a little bit about the company, um, the background um, of the business, and how you've been operating in other parts of the world, and how does that compare to the business that you're looking to start in the U.S. Yep. Um, look, I, I can I can talk about the recent uh, the recent history of, of Nev House particularly um, because I, I became a full time participant um, you know a year ago uh, and the business has been following a very uh, orderly and strategic plan and the first phase of the business was to. Um, undertake architectural and engineering design 
of a building that was going to be appropriate for the Pacific Islands. And that's that kind of quite unique, funky, uh, village-looking um, building that you see on the websites. Right. Now, our architect is, is one of Australia's leading social uh, interest architects. And there was about 12 months of design and engineering went into developing that. And there were a lot of engineering challenges in terms of being able to have the dwelling readily assembled effectively as a kit by unskilled people. Right. Um, so there, were, so that there was a, an activity that involved what we're calling version 1.0 of the Nev House, which mm -hmm. is the one you see on the website. The parallel activity was developing the technology to process the waste plastic and manufacture the building panels. So there was a well, three to four year R&D process to actually achieve what's been achieved, which right. is the ability to take seven coats of plastic and put it into, into a, a panel. So that was, that was stage one and uh, buildings were established in Australia and in response to a cyclone in Vanuatu, uh, which, which again are on the website, and they are the version 1.0 um, um, dwellings. Right. The, the stage we're kind of in at the moment is we're just completing a design of the 2.0, which which has essentially greater um, structural efficiency, some environmental efficiencies, and moving into mass manufacturing. Uh, of the panels. So this is our uh, kind of the, the significant step into the commercialization now. We've proven all the concepts, we've got product out there, the science works, we've got best engineers. We're now at the large scale industrial step. Understood. And the business as it relates to the US and what you're looking to set up here in the US, what would that entail? Okay, so the, the concept with the NEVEARTH, uh, the OZ fund, uh, the, the Opportunity Zone funds were not something we'd heard of or familiar with until late last year. Right. And we had a program uh, Indonesia, we'd had multinational have a plastic problem approaching us, wanting to host the you know, the first big industrial site. Um, now, each of those had their own uh, pros and cons. Right. And, um, and different timelines and, and uh, different partnering arrangements. And we've been sort of working our way through a number of those approaches, which are still active. But we heard about opportunity zones and we thought, well, there's, that's, that's an opportunity to step into a big market, which a lot of Aussie companies want to do, proof their product in Australia and then jump into the US as, as you know, the, the, the biggest advanced economy in the world. So there's right. a commercial appeal to doing so. Um, and uh, the, the opportunity zone funds, again, you know, fit neatly with, with NEV's ambitions to help people and the fact that those funds are targeting into specifically economically depressed areas and the potential to create employment 
in a new industry where no such industry exists. Just that adds another human aspect and a social aspect to the business. See, that's what so, I find amazing in all of this because not only have you been able to deal with an environmental problem, um, but you're also able to then translate that to find a solution for a social problem. And then furthermore, you're now able to help communities that are going to be in need of assistance, but also at the same time create jobs in those communities, um, not from a, just a housing perspective, but also from an employment perspective. So uh, it's amazing that you've been able to do that. You mentioned that leading up to this point, there was about three or four years of R&D. There was a lot of proof of concept that you've you know, been able to establish in Australia, and now you're looking to be able to bring that over um, the U.S. market. How have you funded yourself up to this point? Is this all bootstrapped, or have you taken in investors? How's that been so far? Well, typically it's um, through uh, close friends and associates and myself um, to fund the company over the years. Um, and we've also um, got a limited number of uh, shareholders in an unlisted public company in Australia. Um, and and that's, you know, that's for the global outreach of this. But what excites us the most right now in relation to our immediate future is exactly what Austin's just explained in relation to the uh, Opportunity Zone funds. And to be perfectly honest, I, I think it's genius. This, this, this uh, you know, um, situation in relation to capital gains, deferring capital, I mean, um, um, unrealised capital gains not being applicable. Right. Taxation. Um, so, so my, uh, there is so much interest in what we're doing from the perspective of, I spent a fair bit of time in the US last year in Knoxville, Tennessee, and Denton, Dallas, and LA, San Francisco, San Diego, but specifically in these areas that have got opportunity zones. And the, you know, I had city um, elders and, and uh, heads of the local municipalities saying, Mr. Hyman, please bring this here because we will pay you to take our waste. And we have a homeless problem uh, in the region and we can see that you can create jobs, as Austin was saying, take waste out of the local community, that, they, that is going to landfill and turn it into, you know, homes for the homeless or any iteration. This is not just about shelter for the homeless or shelter for post-disaster. It can also be aged care. It can be homes for millennial youth. It can solve the affordable housing problem. Um, there's so many different iterations of our design to suit all the way up through to eco resorts, etc. So the demand is always going to be there. Well, the, the interesting part for all of this and the reason why it caught my attention, the, just the very nature of what I do is being able to work alongside a lot of family offices and a lot of institutional investors. Now, institutional investors are generally not interested in opportunity zones because they don't really have capital gains or the same tax structure. But when it comes to family offices, the opportunity zones in, in particular, not only are they an amazing uh, opportunity for them, but given what just happened with the fear in the markets and with the coronavirus and everything, the interesting dynamic is that everyone has gotten very conservative. They've pulled out of their positions in the stock markets and other forms of equities. And they do now suddenly find themselves with a whole lot of capital gains that they need to allocate within the next six months, right? Mm -hmm. So opportunity zones where in the past there was some hesitation around them in terms of their effectivity um, has now gained in popularity tremendously. So the timing of your fund 
along with what you're able to do really caught my attention. I thought this is something that, you know, investors have already been asking about in terms of opportunity zones. This would be an interesting opportunity. I love the fact that you guys have been able to already get in touch with local municipalities in the U.S. Um, before I get into the actual financials of the fund itself and the business breakdown of it, maybe Nev, you can tell me very quickly um, the nature of the conversations and, and whether you have outlined a site, whether you have outlined locations, uh, you have anything concrete about where you want to begin the process? Well, um, as my architect said to me when we first started this program back in 2012, 13, he said, Nev, I will not even design a home unless I've lived with the people that I'm designing the home for. Now, he was referring to Indigenous peoples, of course. Right. But the same thing applies here. There's no point in me having a conversation about the US unless I've spent a lot of time there. And I've spent a lot of time in the US over the last 45 years. But right. the last, last year I spent two months uh, and I spent a lot of time in, in, um, in Knoxville, Tennessee, of all places. I was invited to speak at a green housing summit at the University of Tennessee. Right. Um, and then I spent some quality time with good people in Denton, Dallas. And, um, and they embraced the idea so much so that... Um, that they're saying, please do it here first. <laughs> so, so um, and we've got really good people on the ground. However, that doesn't mean that we won't consider doing it elsewhere. I mean, there's, um, who, if investors come in and say, look, I love this, this is awesome, but I want to do something in Idaho uh, or whatever. Um, and, and because one thing we've got to remember, you, you made this point very clear about the uh, the family office scenario and where you're leading with that, I know what you're, you're saying. It's people that have got capital, that have had success, and they want to see some good done with their money. And um, one day, those same people, mark my words, if they invest in an opportunity zone fund and that money is um, creates a community in a depressed area of the US, creating jobs, taking waste out of the environment, etc. one day that investor is going to walk into that community feeling incredibly proud and saying, I contributed to this. I feel good about this. And that's what we mean about doing well by doing good. And we're not the only company in the world that's actually saying that. But it's something, you know, taking waste out of the environment and creating shelter has great appeal. And I had this experience when I was in Vanuatu. Because when we started our project, my partner said to me, hey, Ned, one day we're going to walk into a... a, a uh, a village house that we built, a Nev house, and we're going to cut the ribbon and the kids are going to run in and mum and dad are going to be all happy and excited. And if you go to my website, you'll see that moment because that moment happened in Vanuatu for me and it, it happened almost by default. I was there after a big celebration. You'll see all the photographs on the website of the celebration. It was an amazing uh, time and I was a bit overwhelmed and I went to these two other houses that um, I hadn't even seen yet that we had built. And, I, and I, these kids came running out of the jungle and they started dancing around me and I ran up to the balcony, sat on the balcony. My son was filming with a drone because I was, all I was thinking about was content. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't, you know, give me some content. This will be great. Follow me, Jaden. And then I sat up on the balcony and he's filming and I went, oh, my God, this is that moment. This is the exact moment that we predicted many years before and that's the exact moment that our investors in the Opportunity Zone funds will have. That's what I believe anyway. You're, yeah, you're absolutely right. Family offices are very philanthropic by nature. Um, 
not only are they more focused on the generational wealth that they're trying to preserve for their organizations, but also at the same time, they are a lot more philanthropic than a lot of the the accredited individual investors because they just haven't gotten to that point yet. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that ties really well into this is the fact that not only um, are you guys able to provide value in, from a philanthropic standpoint, but at the end of the day, manufactured housing is on a very steady increase um, in popularity. Actually, when it comes to real estate, it's one of the more popular and more rising uh, <laughs> simply because there is an economic driver behind all this, right? I'm not sure if you're aware, but in the U.S., the rate of inflation has increased to such a degree that the cost of products obviously has dramatically increased. Products that go into building the homes on site, cost of housing has then obviously consequentially now become more expensive. And a lot of people who before could afford these houses can't do so anymore. Income hasn't really increased that much if it's pretty much stayed the same. Um, And people are now, families are now getting closer and closer to the poverty line um, because of the result of how things have gone so far. Now, one of the things that came really, really, you know, well-timed was during this Trump presidency, um, the Secretary for Housing and Urban Development is Dr. Ben Carson, and he's the one who's one of the first people who actually brought about this idea of opportunity zones. And he's also touted the asset class of manufactured housing. So perfect timing. I really like the fact that you guys are focused on the opportunity zones, but also at the same time in an area of manufactured housing that is on you know a tear right now, especially with people who are real estate investors who know exactly what they're looking for. Um, Obviously, as you know, there are a lot of manufactured housing firms. Uh, I feel like I know the answer to this question, but I, I have to ask anyways, how do you feel that you compare to those firms and, and what is it that you do differently? Can I give you a, a great example? Um, yeah. the, when I was in Knoxville, Tennessee, I had the opportunity to meet with Clayton Homes, who are the largest manufactured homes company in, in the US, owned by um, Warren Buffett. Clayton Homes, right? Um, Clayton Homes, yeah. Right, and, right. Um, and they yeah, and they are, um, the, they're a manufactured home company. So but in other words, they create a home in a factory, put it on the back of a truck, take it somewhere and park it. Fantastic business model. Yeah. We are not a manufactured homes company. We're a flat pack home company. Still manufactured. So every component arrives on site, flat pack. So just, just picture this for a second. Imagine, and this is where I'm a bit of a dreamer. So this is where I'd like to see it end up. Imagine having a, a 20 foot trailer with your home flat packed, not a tiny house, not a house with wheels. I just don't understand that, that industry, to be perfectly honest. I would rather buy a motorhome if I was going to buy a house, a trailer that had wheels on it that looked like a house. So, so my point is a flat pack house on a trailer. You know, it arrives at a community. The community is master planned by our architects, a beautiful green community with open space with um, agriculture and all sorts of things there's no need for concrete in our homes we don't have any concrete so there's much less need for civil works because we can bring sanitation water and power into that community and if anybody wants to get an understanding of what that really means have a look at center parks in holland they're more for tourism but it is an example of Having a community that can be low cost, but not a trailer park home. 
a beautiful community where homes are delivered, built rapidly, they're permanent homes, but in fact, the home can be dismantled, put back on the trailer and taken somewhere else. You can lease your home. This is my dream. It may not ever happen, but this is the way I see it. You can lease a car. Why can't you lease a home? Because you can't lease a home because it's tied to the land. So affordable housing is something that needs to go to... My, my, my children could never afford the houses that we live in. Um, but they could afford a movable home. And then if you take that same analogy to post-disaster, pre-disaster, put a thousand houses, NEV houses, in a warehouse that can be deployed rapidly, used for the service, and then dismantled, put back in the warehouse for the next drama. And, and any other iteration of that. That's where I see it going. So, so I'll, I'll just step it back a bit from the... I'm the dreamer. The yes, visionary sorry. dream <laughs> to the, the competitive advantage yeah. upon which Nev's vision can mature. Uh, and, and two of the things that distinctly enable us to do what others can't do is the cost of feedstock, our raw materials, the waste plastic, the business model contemplates that we're actually going to receive a fee for the, dis the disposal of that waste plastic. So rather than going to landfill and the landfill fee being incurred, we're actually receiving the plastic and getting a fee for it. You're getting paid to take the plastic off your hands. We're getting paid to receive our raw materials. There's no other building company model where their materials get delivered to them and they are given a check as part Along of that. With the check. Right? <laughs> so, look, the, the plastic panels are not the only part of the house, but that, that's, they're a significant part of it. And we refer to that as having a, a negative cost of feedstock and negative cost of raw materials, right? So that's, that's one advantage in the overall economics of it. Uh, the second is that because of the uniqueness of how we've designed it uh, and, and the amount of engineering work that's gone in, we're targeting an on-site assembly of only three days to lock up. So compared to traditional building processes, and the same uh, scenario is applying in Australia as you described for the US, that there are transitions. Um, but to have a house at lock up in three days where one skilled supervisor is required and a couple of hefty footballers to lift the panels uh, makes it for a... Different a, definition here, just letting you know. <laughs> we mean something totally different when we say footballers here. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're usually skinny and they, they okay. cry when they fall over. Yeah, we're talking yeah. about guys like him. Or, yeah, yeah, we don't have those here. Okay. So think American footballers or yeah. rugby players. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so it needs four labour guys who, who can lift heavy, heavy panels into place yeah. um, and a supervisor. So, you know, someone can order a house and can be delivered, you know, um, either to a project developer or, or individuals right. and, and be very rapidly installed. Um, so that, they're two key drivers that, you know, help us be competitive aside from... The, the architecture and design that's going to take place that, that's going to mean that our homes aren't a little square or rectangular box, which we, which we won't, um, which we don't like the look of. 
one of the things that really you know interests me and, and I find very fascinating about all of this is is your negative cost of feedstock right you are right it's not often that companies are able to say that um, matter of fact one of the first things any investor will consider when investing in a company is what are what are the costs of your operation and how is that going to translate to your profit right so if you're already starting at an advantage then that definitely bodes well for any investment um, my question is how scalable is this do you think to other areas of the US. Maybe you have this type of an offer from a specific municipality, but do you find or do you think that this will be able to be scaled to other parts of the US, other parts of the country, other parts of the continent, perhaps? Sure, our, our core uh, manufacturing site can produce enough building panels for 2,000 structures per year. Right which is a drop in the ocean in terms of the American housing demand. Right. And the quantum of waste plastic, I don't have the numbers at fingertip now, but, you know, we, we, we could be doing 10 of these factories in every state of the US and we'd, we'd be making incrementally small dents into how much waste plastic's being uh, taken out of the total US consumption. So. It's, it's not unreasonable to say that there's an infinite supply of waste plastic in the US. Okay. Um, and it then becomes a matter of matching demand for our housing, which is a, a, a marketing-driven exercise to create awareness, to be price competitive, to have a better architectural product, an aesthetically better product, a more affordable product, a product that can be assembled more rapidly. Um, and and being competitive with others who are making a tiny house or a you know a square box somewhere that that is called a home. Um, so we're about creating homes rather than just just little boxes that people uh, right. Park. And will you be partnering with uh, will you be partnering with any other organisations in helping you develop uh, these homes? Well, I did mention before Clayton Homes, and I, I just want to clarify that. Um, the reason I said that they're a manufactured home and we're a flat pack home, they're not so interested in NetHouse. They're, they're actually interested in the product. So if we did nothing more, we could make building materials, but we don't want to do that. If we had to, we would. But what we're doing, we're creating shelter. We're creating something that, you know, a complete solution. And the other thing that needs to be said is that the waste stream is not just what we imagine plastic waste to be, which is in our recycle bin, right. municipal waste. Everybody thinks that. They think the bottle and the yogurt containers and the shampoo bottles. What about all the other plastic waste that no one seems to talk about and all, most of it goes to landfill? What about agricultural film, which is a huge problem around the world mm -hmm. where farmers are burning or burying it? Um, right. What about e-waste? Electronic waste, one of the, it is the fastest growing plastic problem on the planet. Naturally. What about um, the, the commercial industrial waste? There's so many things of plastic waste uh, that is still going to landfill that because of our technology, which is not rocket science, because of our technology, we can take all those, co we call it commingled and contaminated plastic waste and we particleize that down into a product which we can then use. So it seems to me then that you're saying that 
where most industries, there's a level of scarcity to the raw materials that they can procure. In your industry, there's there's no shortage of, of the plastic itself that you can gain for your purposes. No, and, and the main reason for that is that every form of recycling that we're mostly aware of requires the plastic that is gathered to be sorted and washed and, and, and brought to a, the nth degree, which is a clear plastic bottle, it has to be so incredibly washed that it can become food grade again to make another bottle. Yeah. Our process allows us to take the commingled contaminated plastic waste and, and use that as it is. There's a, an explanation for that, which I'm happy to go into, but that's what we can do. Wow. And that's the key. When, when I saw what Nev was doing, that to me was the key technical advantage uh, the key innovation, the key driver of the whole opportunity was that meticulous separation of the waste plastics wasn't required and all the cleaning and all the rest of it that Nev's described, that we can essentially take that raw waste that nobody else wants. Um, and, and that's really the uniqueness of us as a recycling business. That's amazing. Okay. What about... From an end-user standpoint, who lives in these homes? Well, I guess the, the answer to that... Sorry, no, no. Uh, the, the answer to that is really who wants one and who needs one. Uh, because, as Nev indicated earlier, they, they can range from, you know, a small home for a homeless person or a homeless veteran or something like that, which is uniquely designed. Right. Or it can be for a multi-million dollar eco-studio, eco-tourism resort, which we're quoting on around the world. So we're not constrained by a particular demographic. We uh, have a proposal before an Asian royal family for developing an overwater luxury resort. So um, there's no... There's no limit to the sizing of these facilities. They can be made for families and they can be made for individuals and et cetera as well. Yeah, and because the, the design is a module. It's a right. three-meter module. So any iteration of a three-meter square is what this house can be. Okay. And, and then whatever requirements in relation to, um, you know, hurricane ratings and seismic ratings, things like that, then we can en engineer the home to meet those ratings also. Okay. And because we don't use concrete, because we don't use rendering and painting, the homes themselves can have, they have very limited requirement for maintenance. Okay. Um, and I just want to address one thing before you ask the question, and that is the home that you live in right now and the, and the office that you go to and the car that you drive and the plane that you fly in and the computers and everything that you, you work around are plastic. <laughs> You know, the carpet that you lie in is polyethylene. The paint that you... So this is not a plastic house. I, 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 it's a composite house. This is a house made from materials that are no different than all the other materials out there in the marketplace that, are, that meet the code. But ours, our panels, not bricks, our panels, which are one metre by 2.5 metres roughly, those panels are a composite panel. That, I think, is an extremely important distinction to make and I'm glad you did um, I wasn't even aware of this so you're saying that everything's made up of the basic element of polyethylene 
uh, that we're used to. And, and so it's no different from what it is that you're doing. You're just using that to create a different type of module. Yeah, there's many different codes of plastic. There's seven codes, and the last code, mm -hmm. number seven, is everything else. But the other codes, right. um, I mean, I'll give you an example. PVC is, they say, is the worst plastic, or one of the worst plastics. But PVC um, is fine if it's this far away from your face. But right. if it burns, it's not good for you. That's right. the basic tenet of PVC. Mm -hmm. So the whole purpose of what we do, and just I'll try to keep this as briefly as possible, but it's called encapsulation. So we encapsulate the granulated plastic that's inside. Right. And then we have a polymer on the surface that seals what's inside. Right. So that's encapsulation. Okay. So that the, the, um, the fear of living in something that will emit something is removed from the encapsulation of the, the polymer on the surfaces. Right. Now we aim at this point, to use a natural biopolymer on the surface, such as a lignin-based plastic, which is a plastic made from sh sugarcane and anything cellulose. So it's a natural polymer. So that seals everything in within. But the last point I want to make about what's inside is this is a, a mixture of, of different plastics. We still have a certain chemistry, proprietary chemistry, and I don't even like the word chemistry, but a mixture of the, of the polymers. If you take, as an example, everything that is in your recycle bin at home, mm -hmm. which goes to the, to the truck, it's taken to a material recovery facility, which is called a MRF, that gets sorted and all the plastic gets this way and that way and they recycle some of it and the rest goes to landfill. But if you take all of that plastic and put it in one bin, not sorted, crush, grind and shred it down into a particle and test it, 70 to 80% of that is polyethylene and polypropylene. Okay. And they are regarded as the safe plastics okay. that we live and breathe every day. Mm -hmm. So their ground and the bottom 20 or 30% is yeah, some of the other the organic material, peanut butter and oils and, and PVCs and styrenes and things like that. But it's, right. it's re a reduced, it's so heavily diluted that it has no effect. So what we put inside encapsulated with the, the polymer on the surface makes a very safe panel. Okay, that makes, that actually does clarify things a lot. Um, so you're basically no more exposed to plastic than you are in your own house or your own car, as Nev said. You know, 100%, and, and again, definitely a very, very important distinction to make because when it comes to plastic, there's the plastic is evil scenario, and then there's also the other scenario is plastic is harmful for health. So the fact that, you know, you guys are not doing something that's different than what we are already doing, uh, I think that's very, very important to be able to distinguish. Can I just make one more distinction? I have to make this. For because sure. there's a lot of discussion. A lot of people say, oh, you're making plastic bricks, are you, Mr. Nev? I'm going, no, I'm not making plastic bricks, which are being made in South America and other places around the world. Right. If you take all of that polymer and make a brick, then the polymer that's in the middle and the polymer on the surface is the same polymer. So when it gets in the sun and things, then it can emit things. So therefore that brick must be surfaced, which right. creates more effort, more work, more labor. With our panel, it's finished. The panel gets delivered to site, clips into place, interior wall, exterior wall finished. The panel then, can it be reused once you've assembled that home into yes. other? In fact, if the, if the house 
for some reason needed to be destroyed or was destroyed, we could take every component of that house, regrind it and make another house from it. Probably won't happen, but if we had to, we could do that. Okay. So flexibility is there. We talked a little bit about... The last thing is... Uh, continue. I'm sorry. I, I didn't. Uh, we have a bit of a lag here, so I didn't realize you were speaking. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, Nevhouse sequesters approximately four ton of uh, carbon in every house. Right. It's there forever because it's going to be inside that house. So we're sequestering to carbon, okay. which I think is a huge thing for the environment. Yeah. No, I mean that's that's certainly impressive. It's new and it's a novel idea for for everybody, but. It seems to me after speaking to you that this is not so novel after all. You're just repurposing what's already being done. Um, Austin, I would like to spend a little bit of time focusing on the, the business because we've understood the social aspect of it. We've understood how the business came to be. But when we're talking investments and when we're talking about investors, you know better than I do, it always comes down to the money. Sure. Um, so... Could you take me through, you know, what it is that you're looking for in the Opportunity Zone Fund? What are the specifics, such as how much are you looking to raise? Um, what would be the term of that investment and et cetera? Yeah. Um, look, the, the first round raise that we're seeking is uh, US 30 million. Right. But the fund uh, cap is 350 million. Okay. Now, that second or subsequent rounds will be um, based on a cautious appreciation of how we've moved in the first round. Right. Um, now, the first round raise will um, fund two Nevhouse CRPP 2000 manufacturing facilities. Yeah. Um, and the pre... Uh, condition on, on establishing those will be feasibility studies, uh, industry analysis and uh, things that tie back to your question to Nev about where will the first one be. Right. Uh, we've certainly got options um, and many and I'm sure once, once we poke our head up there will be a lot more. So because of my previous work we've, we've got a, a significant team of industry experts there, ex-EPA directors and people like that have been in my networks that I've been brought to Nev House, as well as all the US connections that Nev has, has developed over the years. So probably the, the context I'd say, before I dig further into your question, is we'll be informed by feasibility studies from industry experts that will help us determine the right location, the right city, the right um, uh, contracts for the, the waste, um, you know, waste plastic contracts, uh, logistics hubs, transport to market, local demand for housing, potential opportunities for us to design and develop our own uh, designed communities. Right. So Tennessee, uh, where Nev's been and spent a lot of time, is already ticking a lot of those boxes. So but we're not fixated yet. We'll, every decision will be based on pragmatic feasibility uh, and, and tied to that, obviously, is support by local government. Um, so $30 million is, is the first raise. Uh, two factories is, is what we'll develop. Right. Uh, 
Now, we're anticipating uh, an 18-month lead time from the time of the first investment to the time factory doors are open. Uh, okay. Feasibility period of six months and then manufacturing of equipment. Uh, subsequent to that, we're anticipating two to three years of operations for the factories to uh, essentially ramp the business up and be selling full production. We're obviously not going to sell 2,000 houses in the first 12 months of operation. So we're anticipating a sort of a three-year period of, um, of uh, growth to capacity. Uh, and then, you know, from about mid four and a half year on, we're, we're in profit at full capacity. Um, now, the duration of, of the investment really ties to the um, criteria and opportunity for those investors coming into an opportunity zone fund and, it is, and, and the, uh, the private placement memorandum links the duration of the investment to those milestones in the opportunity zone fund legislation. Right, for so the five year, the seven year and the ten year. Yeah. Hmm. So one of the questions I wanted to ask actually is, and clarify for sure, is that the investors who are looking at you guys as an investment, they're not looking at this as a real estate fund. They're looking at this as money being as equity towards the operating business of, of Never. Correct. So right. the structure, which probably is important for your investors uh, to understand, uh, Saad, is that the, the Never Earth OZ fund is the peak vehicle in the structure. And then for purposes of risk management, we will incorporate separate entities. Um, for example, if there was a, a CRPP factory and business to be built in California and another one in Tennessee, they will both be in subsidiary, separate subsidiary companies. So that we're, we're managing risk by separating operational risk uh, across different entities. So as we expand and go forward, the, the Never Earth OZ fund, which the investors are shareholders in, will then make equity investments into those underlying assets and will appoint management teams to run each of those underlying assets. So, so they're investing in the, in the parent company or they're investing in the underlying assets that the fund itself will be focused towards? They are investing in the Neverth OZ Fund Inc, which is the parent entity for the whole thing. Right. And that fund will then be the primary investor in these underlying assets. Okay, makes perfect sense. And um, how about exit for the investors themselves? Because the timeline for the opportunity zones tells them 10 years. Um, now, what's your plan to be able to offer your investors exits, or do you prefer that they, they maintain uh, ownership of, of part of the company that they've bought uh, even after? Yeah, look, our preference is to make this a longer horizon than a shorter one because we're talking about building significant businesses. Right. Um, the, the exit opportunities, and we're not fixated on any invest, any particular exit opportunity at the moment for any of the underlying assets, but the options are a, a, a structured buyback from the fund uh, that we seek, uh, that the underlying asset companies, which have grown in value, then seek another form of uh, debt or equity finance to enable the initial investors to exit. 
um, subsequent uh, pursuit of scale. There might be an IPO opportunity. So we're cognizant of the need to give people that exit mechanism, but where we're sitting today and that sort of five-year window when we've actually got the businesses at full capacity, somewhere towards year four, year five, we'll be starting. That's when we'll start to really drill into exit um, mechanisms and start to make a decision and pre-position those mechanisms over the next year or two. But our preference would be, you know, if investors see the opportunity to be in for a, a longer haul than 10 years, uh, you know, the Nev Earth team is going to be in this for a longer haul than 10 years. Um, would it be fair to say then that you're not looking for, first of all, this is a private equity play, um, and you're not just looking for somebody who's looking to make a quick buck, but you're, you're looking for somebody who's looking for a, a real partnership in this, in this uh, company? Yeah, look, this is a sustainable business, not just in the sense of environmentally sustainable, but, you know, this, this is a, a long-term growth opportunity to, to build a, a valuable business, um, a sustainable economic business and, and good value for investors. And it's the furthest return for a... Uh, it's the furthest from a sort of quick buck return um, one could imagine, you know. So, you know, the... The longer-term strategic equity holders um, yeah. are, are probably the people that we are really interested in. Do you will you be charging a management fee um, for the investors that are coming in? Yeah, there's a management company being established uh, called Neverth Management, which will actually manage the entire uh, operational part of the business, uh, and that that company charges a two percent uh, fee annually. Right, uh, and yeah, and and in the uh, memorandum, there's a there's a formula for performance a performance bonus um, if we exceed um, you know thresholds and returns to investors and values, and that's all clearly articulated right. in the and that's uh, all based the on the aristocracy. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. And what about your projections for the fund and for the business itself? I mean, I'm sure you have some numbers that are already in mind. Yeah, look, I'll just say from the outset, Saad, that we've, our, our preference is sort of under-promise and over-deliver. Um, which is which, the way to go. Which isn't necessarily comparable with how other people promote their investment opportunities. Um, but we, we like to be cautious um, and, and make sure that our representations are sound and can reasonably be achieved. So. We've, we've looked at the, uh, the financial models of the underlying companies because they're essentially the drivers of the returns back to the fund. Right. And we can see that um, year, year four, um, at maximum capacity, they should be returning uh, with 20% annual profit pre-tax. Um, and then there will be, you know, decisions about, reinvestment, expanding to add value, you know, whether there might be another production line brought on to increase value, all consistent with our longer term play. Um, but we're advocating uh, an 8% plus return over the life of the fund and hope to exceed that. And if we don't exceed it, then we're not getting any performance uh, 
uh, management fees at all. So um, we're, we're driven to perform um, and uh, our focus really is to make the underlying businesses profitable because at the end of the day, that's what's feeding the, the capital back to the fund. Right, right, understood. Okay. Okay. So let me put on my investor hat on for a second and think about how I would make that investment, why I would make that investment. And the first question that always comes to mind is, well, what are the fundamental risks to this strategy? Right. Can you comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and my, my background for 15 or 20 years was risk management. So I'm, I'm probably more attuned to risk than anyone else in the room. Uh, <laughs> yeah, most certainly. I can vouch for that. Um, and there's room as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so essentially, there, there, there are two parts to analysing risk. One is there's a manufacturing business, and, and the other is there's a, a housing and sale and development sort of business. So we're not immune to any uh, economic or industry risks that might affect manufacturing in general or housing. On the manufacturing side, obviously, um, we're, we're looking at uh, supply chain security right. as one. And again, that works exceptionally favourably in this waste-type environment because unlike other supply chains, we've seen a lot disrupted during COVID globally where global supply chains have broken down. Um, waste municipalities and and companies dealing in waste are often happy to enter 10 and 20 year supply contracts to get rid of the waste. So there's probably another unique factor that uh, comes into this business is, is the potential for longevity of supply chains. Right. Um, you know, general economic risk, economic downturn, you know, the right sort of management teams to run the companies, uh, compliance costs, environmental costs. You know, our risk is no different to any other manufacturing company or any other company selling houses. What's key for us is risk mitigation, risk management, risk planning, uh, offsetting risk. And uh, that's uh, something that I'm, I'm working through at a strategic level at the moment is the whole risk um, mitigation strategy. Um, but I think from an investor point of view, the, the, the keys are really, as in any other business, if you have got the right people, the right skill sets, you know, a, a demand for the product, then the risk really drills down to are the people running the show skilled and capable to run this business? Because it doesn't matter if none of the, none of the other risks manifest. If the, if the people aren't capable, then that's the biggest risk in my view. Understood. So thanks to the team, being able to mitigate the risks of the manufacturing process, the supply chain, as well as making sure that there's you know, economic factors that would, would prevent you know, demand for your product. And look, the advantage of the, uh, the, the, the product is that if economic factors changed in the US and local demand for housing dried up, remarkably, then 
there's the potential to flip the button and switch to export marketing, export sales. So okay, so you've got a backup plan. Yeah, um, one of the other backup plans is other materials. Like I was saying before, we we don't have to build homes. We can make almost anything. This is a molding process, not an extrusion process. We can make other stuff, but we don't want to make other stuff. Understood. Understood. You feel that you found a place where you can add value and where you can add some impact and hundred mm. percent. Um, one of the things, uh, I was actually just discussing you guys with a family office recently, um, casually, and, and I was just bringing up the idea and, and as excited as I am about it, I wanted to kind of gauge as to what they thought about it. And here's an interesting take that they had. And I think you might be able to comment on this as well. Even in the term, even in the case of an economic downturn where operationally your business may suffer operationally, whether it's supply chain, whether it's the other fundamental aspects of the, of the business day to day. Well, what that happens is that on a macro perspective, um, other people's need for affordable housing will increase. Mm. So though your operations may suffer, your the demand for your product will actually increase alongside it at the same time. Can I give you a practical example of that right here on the Gold Coast? Surfboards. My whole, my whole industry, my whole life has been around making surfboards. To, to sell a surfboard, you have to have an incredible brand. You have to have professional surfers riding your boards and do all the competitions and all the marketing to get your very small slice of the market. And I was very successful at that. And I created the company Firewire Surfboards in 2005 and in 2015. Kelly Slater, the 11 times world surfing champion, bought that company. So I know branding. I know how hard it is to get a very small slice of the market. Right. You've got an economic downturn. People are buying surfboards left, right and centre. They're buying bikes. We all know that. They're buying things that they need. And to your point and to your, your, your friend from the family office's point, everybody needs housing. And it's not the mansion on the side down the road. It's the affordable ADU. It's the smaller house. We're in the right place. I agree. I 100% agree with you. Um, so you guys have a great economic uh, sort of outlook and, and, and a shield when it comes to the operation of your business. You're in a very, very impactful part of the business. Um, how would you sum up your experience in, in, in how things have been in the U.S., your conversations so far? And if I were to give you the ability to, you know, take a minute, minute, just really summarize for us what it is that it is that you do. Um, how would you put that and what would you leave as a lasting thought to investors who are considering you? Uh, as I said earlier, I've spent a lot of time in the US, but I've also spent a lot of time elsewhere. And um, I was told a couple of years ago, go to the US, young man, and, and, and the money will come because Americans are far more like Australians and far less like Forgive me for saying this, but Europeans are a little bit harder to get the money out of. I'm not um, European, so you can say that. <laughs> <laughs> but I say that with the greatest respect to the many people that I've met on the road over the last few years in the financial industry in Europe than I have. They're very conservative. Very conservative. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, best analogy I can give you is, sir, we would love to invest in your company, but we can't because it's not in our mandate to do so. And we would rather now invest in that wind farm over there because they've got five years of figures. Right. So 
in the US, it's just, really? This is fantastic. You know, let's get behind you with this. So I love the idea of working in the US uh, with investors who, uh, you know, are prepared to take a punt, but also very astute in analysing what the business model is and whether that's worthy of taking I'm loving the opportunity that, and I've got to say again, the opportunity zone uh, business model is genius. And I would love once we have the success in the US to come back to my prime minister in Australia and say, what are you doing? We should be doing this here too. Yeah. And also uh, on the topic of opportunity zones, it might also be very prudent to mention that you guys have partnered with David Silliman, who mm -hmm. I consider to be uh, an expert in the industry of opportunity zones. He's created well over 70, I believe, funds um, and been able to work with local developers and, and local businesses who don't have the ability to create those funds, but David has the expertise to be able to structure it for them and also help them in the propagation of those funds. So um, what role has David played in your um, process and how has he been able to add value? Well, David's uh, value to us has been significant, um, really from the point of view of educating us as to the significance of the Opportunity Zone Fund. Because, and not just from the financial side, but because of the drivers that would enable us to invest or to develop our business in the US with US investors. So there was a pathway for us which we'd never considered. Um, and before we asked David and, and formed um, a commercial relationship with him to ask him to establish all of the fund infrastructure for us. Uh, we and our legal team did a lot of due diligence around people and organisations who were established or providing services to the OZ fund industry. And we were overwhelmingly impressed with where David sat in that hierarchy. Um, so we engaged him to do all of the establishment of, of our fund and to uh, also assist us to meet other people who can help add value. And I think a, a vote of confidence from David in our fund is that he has indicated to us a willingness and an interest in being one of the independent directors on the Neverth OZ Fund, which is something he's not offered to any of the other 70 fund uh, managers which he's incorporated. So we, we took that as a vote of confidence in us as well, um, yeah. that, that he, he could isolate us as being having some unique characteristics that he was keen to support. He also that. pointed out that um, we're in a unique position that this is a business to business type, family office business to investment in our business. Whereas most of the investment, as we understand it, in opportunity zones have been more uh, commercial, real estate, it's things like that. And that it doesn't have any, it's not sexy. You know, what, what we got, what we have is very sexy and in, in the positive sense of that word. Um, so, yeah, so we're excited about it. And uh, he, he is brilliant, you know, absolutely brilliant. For sure. I mean, one of the things that, that really drove me to all this was that David and the way he vouched for you because of his excitement around the project. And, and I know David to be somebody, as you described, who is 
I, I would say I'm on the top of the hierarchy in, in understanding the value of opportunity zones and the ability to be able to identify projects and deals that he thinks would be successful under those conditions. So um, I also wanted to be you know, made aware that not only are you guys experienced enough to build a business on your own, but you're also partnered with David to be able to guide you and, and help you navigate through the opportunities that are that are available through our structures here. Yeah, look, it's not uh, it's not lost on us that we're stepping into a new market outside of our own country, um, and we we rely heavily on on people like David and you know our industry expert connections and government connections, right? To make sure that you know we're well informed and and we're understanding the you know the context of it, but. Uh, David's been first class for us, and uh, we envisage a long-term relationship with him. And the administration also with NES, um, they're really excited about what we're doing too. And, and through our um, you know, due diligence, we understand that they are also uh, you know, the experts of the field uh, for administration. So we're excited about that too. Right. You guys are, you guys, your fund administrators are NES Financial, right? Yes, that's right. Okay. Um, yeah, so it seems like you have some some real institutional backers behind you. Um, that mm -hmm. definitely helps a long way. Um, I think that this is going to go very, very far, and I think that um, it'll be an exciting journey for me as well to be able to work with you and to be able to help you as much as I can. Um, any last words, any last uh, thoughts before we wrap this up? Get the planes going so we can get over there and go and meet some people. <laughs> Gosh, you know. Um, well, you know what, hopefully, hopefully things return back to normal. Um, I've been thriving in my environment, but I know that everybody's been, been a little stir crazy at home. So, but regardless, I mean, look, thank you. Thank you very, very much. Um, I know that it's early in the morning for you guys, but for taking the time to actually come and sit down with me, um, hopefully we get this out there to enough people for them to understand exactly what it is that you do and to be able to connect you with the people that are really, you know, see your message and who can resonate with that idea. Hmm. Fantastic. Okay. Thanks, sir. It was great chatting with you. And the surf is really good, so I'm out of here. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You're you going to have to teach me how to do that. <laughs> <laughs>